Hi everyone, I'm Duncan. And I'm Lyle. And we're here to tell you about the Acast supporter feature. If you enjoy this podcast and fancy going one step further in supporting the QLC, hit the link in the show description to find out more. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. What's not to like? Thank you so much, everyone. And enjoy this episode. The Quarter Life Chronicles With Duncan and Lyle Hello and welcome to the Quarter Life Chronicles Quarter Life Chronicles episode 8 Episode 8 Duncan And guess what? It's very exciting for us to be able to say (laughs) that this week we are coming to you live from from the same place, the pub. We are in the same place, we are in the same vicinity, (laughs) because guess what? Restrictions of ease, we are able to meet up, and we are currently at the glorious Blue Anchor in Hammersmith. Other pubs are available. (laughs) Other pubs are available. But it's glorious to be here, glorious to be in the same place, hopefully the first of many live podcast recordings. Hopefully. The environment's great, the atmosphere's great, and we're thrilled to be able to be together uh, at last at long last we're eight episodes in and we've, we've yet to be in the same vicinity as one another it's been, yeah, uh, yeah. been remote I'm, I'm not gonna lie far. I'm not gonna lie we're quite a few pints in we had a wonderful chat this week with the wonderful Rose Trussman who is a great friend of mine and her fantastic father Matthew Trussman who is also a friend of mine which is wonderful to say because it's so <laughs> lovely to have friends of all ages he and she Rose and Matthew were fabulous and, and really gave us an insight into how different a crisis can be based on your life experience where you are with your careers how changing your careers is no bad thing and how often it can lead to so many good things and I think we both of us learn a lot from this conversation absolutely Um, and yeah, I'm just so excited that you get to hear it. And it's the, it's a, it's a first, the first father and daughter duo. The first father and daughter duo. <laughs> and please continue to subscribe, follow, review, whatever you can. Please, please, please spread the word. Tell your friends, tell your pets, tell the people you hate. We love it. And, uh, and all the more, the more the merrier. So thank you so much so far for all your support, everyone. Our first beer garden slash live introduction to the Court Life Chronicles. Thank you so much for being with us thus far. We have some special guests here cheersing our first Three, live intro. Three, two, one, cheers. Yay! Enjoy, listeners. This is the wonderful Rose and Matthew Trustman for your listening pleasure, and we'll see you on the other side. Thank you so much. Hello. Hello, guys. How you doing? Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, Rose. Welcome, Matthew. How are you both doing? Welcome. Good, good. Thank you. Enlivened. (laughs) Enlivened (laughs) is what we like. Yeah, so we have our first ever, listeners, we have our first ever father and daughter combination on the podcast. This is a first, and it's a first we are very excited about. Are we not, Lyle? Very, very excited. Lovely to meet you both. Lovely to meet you both. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, very excited about this one. Very excited. A a shift in dynamic, if you will. A a, a quarter life chronicles first. Um, And how are you both doing? How's, uh, How's your week been so far? How are you guys going? Good, yeah. Happy to, happy to be here. What a lovely way to spend my evening. Thanks so much for having us. And you're very, very welcome indeed. I think this is the first time me and my dad have been a guest, just us two anywhere. Right? <laughs> yeah, we used to get thrown out of hamburger joints together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. From then well, on, a, a, a glorious team was formed. The yeah. team, a rebellious yeah. team. <laughs> well, I mean, they were a team from the moment Rose was born. Let's this be is real. True. Let's this be much real. is true. Very true. Um, <laughs> 
So, you know, I know you two have listened to previous episodes. You have stumbled in to the Quarter Life Chronicles, a podcast that asks the very occasionally deep questions about the Quarter Life crisis, that old phenomenon. So without further ado, and this question is, of course, for both of you, what do you associate with the phrase the Quarter Life crisis? Now, let's kick off with the person who's potentially in their Quarter Life years. No offence, Matthew. Rose. (laughs) I kind of want to start by saying, can we... Dad, can you expose your age? <laughs> I just feel like we need to get it out there. And also, I really think it's quite an achievement. I can expose my age, yeah. I, I am 69 and six months. Oh, hey! Love that, love that. Brilliant. Well, you're, you're welcome to it. You're welcome to it. 7-0, <laughs> upcoming. Hopefully. Coming up. Hopefully. Yeah, well, hopefully. yeah, I might make it, yeah, yeah. You're, well, no, I mean, hopefully. No, I don't mean hopefully in that sense. <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> I know. What I meant was hopefully in the sense that hopefully you can enjoy your 70th in a post-pandemic world was where I was oh. going to get to. But, um, you know, look, listeners, please don't put me in that box. Critical anyway, male, very welcome. Uh, we we digress. I'm probably, I'm probably going to be in a box before you are, Duncan, so don't worry. Oh, <laughs> stop, stop. Right, back to it. Rose, go for it. Sorry, yeah, I just wanted to kick that off with the old man's age. But um, what do I associate with the quarter-life crisis? I think I associate it with a shift, a big shift. I feel very much like I'm in the crisis for sure. And I think for me, it was having a bit of a shift from it being funny to it not being so funny. (laughs) basically in short from being like oh I don't really know what I'm doing oh god I feel a bit directionless I feel a bit lost how about you oh yeah we're all in it together too uh this doesn't feel so good anymore and that is how I would I would summarize it at least my experience and same question to you Matthew which is a slightly different question I guess because you've probably I don't know have you had a course life crisis have you had a midlife crisis there's a lovely you know there's a myth isn't there that you're gonna have three quarters more after the first quarter. That's just a myth. I mean, let's just be frank. That's a myth. So I can speak with some authority because I'm I've at least had half again, haven't I? <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. You so, made it to half time. I think, yeah. I mean, I had a I had a crisis around my late twenties. And um when I was thinking about this, you know, I also thought my dad was, you know, like ducking napalm not napalm, ducking bullets on the in the Second World War and bombs and crap like that when he was 23, 24. And my, mother, my mother's first husband was killed by the time she was 26. So it's kind of, let's use the word relative, shall we? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Relative, what a crisis is. And I was just looking up, it says here, a crisis is any event that will lead to an unstable and dangerous situation affecting an individual or group or society. Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we use that a lot, don't yeah, we? Yeah, we love it. We love it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. When I was in my late 20s, parts of my world fell apart and uh, things that I thought I believed in, I started to question. And uh, people I I thought were pretty cool, um, I decided probably weren't. I would just say that I'm not entirely sure that the quarter life crisis ends when it should. It's just it just begins and never ends from about about the age of twenty five. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, we only changed the name. It's still yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a good point. We talk about midlife crisis. We've we've gone over that potentially wrongly because we often talk about it from a perspective of us on our age which is we're not there yet so how can we know what it is when we've never got there whereas a lot of people who've been through that potential midlife period can say well it's kind of just been a crisis the whole time really since i since i adulted 
it's kind of just yeah. stayed at that level, <laughs> maybe. It's nice to think of, because crisis kind of says it's going to happen, then it's going to end, doesn't it? Yeah. It doesn't say it's perpetual. I don't know about midlife crisis, but quarter-life crisis didn't exist until a few months ago. But <laughs> definitely in my 20s, and I kind of car- I recognise that, it can be a bit of a, a shitstorm. I think from my perspective, at least in my own experience, I felt myself and quite a few people around me this obsession of sort of not being in it and oh I, I know what I'm doing now and I'm I'm really on a path and I'm I'm getting to grips with things and actually I said to you dad the other day because I mean if you catch me on a good day I feel like I'm sort of exiting the crisis if you catch me on the bad day I feel like I'm spiraling even deeper into one um this was a particularly good day and I was on a walk actually with you dad and I was feeling pretty like solid feeling quite optimistic about the future and I was like oh yeah you know dad like since I've kind of cracked down on my career since I've cracked down on it and you stopped me there and then and you went what you you haven't cracked down on your career it's not about cracking down on your career because that sort of undermines everything I've done up until this point I'm just trying out some other stuff for now. I think that was a really important reminder because I do have a little bit of an obsession just for myself that I'm like, nope, I've, I've got a hold of things now and, and this is what I'm going to do and this is where I'm going to be and look how mature I am and look what I'm going to achieve in a couple of years' time. I think it's really important to not get too stuck in that headspace because it does undermine what you've achieved so far. And also there's no guarantee that things are going to work out the way you'd like them to. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we spoke about this a little bit with Becky on the last episode, which of course is was wholly to do with, you know, she had an idea of how things were going to be and then a huge thing happened that completely changed her outlook on most of that. And it's, it's the same. And it, and it doesn't have to be things on the scale that, that Becky went through. It could be, you know, something very small, but that's still valid. It's still totally valid, that thing that's made that change or has it could be something at work or just something in your psyche or you know, something's changed in your, I don't know, like, I don't know, you start, took up a new hobby that changed your perspective on things. I don't know. And it's it's nice that there isn't a rule of what constitutes the turning point, you know? I love all of this. I'm loving <laughs> the sort of diversity of approaches and responses we have to this crisis. Something that stuck with me that Matthew said, that you said, Matthew, was this idea that it doesn't end. And I know that sounds like a really sad thing and a really pessimistic thing, but me, Dunks and Rose if I may speak for you, Rose, I do apologize. Mm, yeah, <laughs> are um, kind of existentially in a quarter-life crisis at varying levels of embracing it. Like at some point, me and Dunks will reveal the extent to which we're going yeah, through one ourselves. We're, the reason why we're interviewing all these people is so that we don't have to interview ourselves <laughs> yeah. and actually come to the conclusion that we're the ones who are in the worst crisis. And also just out of a desperate need to figure out what it is that we're actually <laughs> going through. It's actually quite selfish. <laughs> it's Sorry, like a you know, desperate search for information. But what's interesting is that actually you're so right Matthew and what you say about crisis like it kind of necessitates an end like there's a finality to a crisis almost but actually what you said is really interesting is that actually are we in this state of mind because we feel like there will be an end and actually or, or we're anticipating it and actually maybe there is something in embracing that it might not end do you know what I mean maybe there's something in just existing in it I don't know a myth, right? People think of myths as things that aren't true. But myths are things that we believe in, and they're things that become true because we believe in them. Those two things happen at once. So the idea of a quarter life implies that there's going to be a three-quarters and a 100%, and that that gives you a long time to think about shit, doesn't it? You know, yeah, and yeah, there's yeah. sorts of implied things in there like, hey, this is okay because I've got another 50 years. or so. Well, I just caution that as an old geezer. You know, <laughs> 
uh, existentially, and I love the word that you, you use that word, Lyle, because I love that idea. Existentially, you know, you, we breathe in and we breathe out. That's a bit of luck. It's nothing to do with your self-control or whether you've got a career or you're a, you just happen to be able to breathe in and out at the moment. And <laughs> God bless a few million people around the world can't do that at the moment either. Yeah. Like, so, you know, without getting too glum about it, you know, it is mm. extraordinary. But I do understand because I remember thinking, oh, my God, everyone else is doing this, that, and doing this, that, and the other, and I'm still doing this. And actually, even what I'm doing is no longer anything I believe in. That was pretty heavy. So I do know that happens, but I don't think it go, goes away. <laughs> <laughs> this idea of like imposter syndrome is something that I actually don't think we've talked an awful lot about on the pod so far. But it's really interesting and something I've been hearing a lot more about. And I'm really intrigued with how it might tie into a quarter-life crisis. And we've talked a lot about moments recently, moments that sort of characterise your quarter-life crisis. To both of you, Rose, in terms of what you're going through right now, and Matthew, in terms of you've alluded to a period in your life in your mid to late 20s where there might have been a moment that you would use to characterise that crisis. Yeah. Rose, we'll start with you. Like, would you say there is a moment or would you say, because you mentioned your career, or would you say it's been a sort of a, a series of things? How, how would you define that? Where are you at with it right now? And then, and then Matthew, you can answer the same question maybe about about what you went through in your in your 20s where am I at with it right now I I mean I've said this already but honestly it depends on the day (laughs) um it really depends on the day because sometimes I think oh my god I've completely lost sense of myself and lost sight of myself and other days I'm really excited by the change that I'm going through and even now I'm stopping myself because I'm not sure how to say it I don't know whether I say I was an actor or I am an actor but on a good day I'm gonna say I am an actor so it's a good day I am an actor Um, and I was working, uh, I was working in a side hustle job as we have to do in a very bougie uh, boxing gym in central London and I'd got very comfortable there. It was a really nice little side job, very flexible, very fun and I'd worked there. You you met some serious faces at that gym, can you just just name drop? Just a couple, just a couple. Please do. David Beckham. Matthew McConaughey, <laughs> to name a few. Like honestly, it was yeah. I and but God, speaking of imposter syndrome, what the <laughs> hell was I doing there? I'm not a big fan of exercise. I, a mate just got me in there, so um. All right, yeah. all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. I'm there sweating, pretending to punch a boxing bag next to the guy. Like, <laughs> so that that's the imposter. That's the imposter. That's mate. the real imposter. No, but I, I seriously did. I did sort of think, what? How am I here? And I'm never boxed since either but um in hindsight now I was just basically really unfulfilled and I was always looking for escapes I I went to Sri Lanka and I thought right this is my answer I'm, I'm gonna move to Vietnam I need to like completely live a different life and at that moment my instinct was I need to run away from my reality and just do something totally different in another country on the other side of the world that's fine that's my answer and I I remember turning 25 and going right 25 is the year of change the year of change the year of change and it was (laughs) because of a global pandemic um so my wishes were answered I guess but not in the way that I thought they would be but what happened from then is I lost my job my bougie gym job and that 
actually knocked me for six because I thought I was really part of the furniture within that team and it wasn't handled very well and there's lots of politics I won't go into but I was the only person that they let go from that role and all the theatres shut as we know and I found myself with no job and no money I had to go on universal credit I couldn't afford my rent I had to write to my landlord and it made me really like face up to stuff. It made me really face up to the fact that how much was I actually applying myself to acting anyway? Or, or was I just getting distracted by bougie David Beckham punching a boxing bag in, in the gym? You know, like that's that. Hey, look, hey, look, that is a perfectly legitimate distraction. Oh. <laughs> you won't be the first and, and you know, <laughs> won't be the last to, to have had that situation occur. Of yeah. course, let's be, of course. Let's be, let's be real. Uh, Everyday occurrence. But, but that was really interesting for me. That was like, wow, I'd got quite comfortable in actually ultimately quite an unfulfilling, progressionless path. Um, and so thank God for the pandemic and thank God for them kicking me out. And thank God for me sort of hitting a low point with not being able to afford to live in London. And, you know, because it just made me completely readjust my perspective and go okay shit I asked for change this is the change and now what and that was a really healthy thing to have happened and and lo and behold the answer wasn't actually moved to Vietnam <laughs> well, I mean, it couldn't have gone anyway so <laughs> <laughs> I might still one day but I don't think that was the immediate answer um at that time so I'm I am grateful for all the terrible things that happened and I'm aware I've I'm very lucky to be feeling this, but actually I'm, I'm pretty thankful for these, this last year of being forced to stop and, and reconsider. I needed it. So that was my very long answer. No, no, not at all. Hey, no, you said earlier on, like to cut a long story short, we're a big fan here on the QSC of making short stories long. Uh, we love that. Yeah, we, we like the reverse of that. You, you, uh, should, you should see our edits. It's just like, oh, we've got four hours of talking to put into an hour. Let's go. Bring it on. Um, and also in, in the long list of questions uh, that um, the answer could be moving to Vietnam. Um, I, I feel like I feel like you, you you came to the right answer there and not moving to Vietnam. But it's worth it's worth me giving both sides of the argument. There are lots of questions where the answer is move to Vietnam. Um, you know, so, yeah. so that's fine. You know, feel. Would you like Would you like a better sustainable diet? Yes, move to Vietnam. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. All very true. <laughs> that's a uh, large market gone uh, <laughs> but uh, matthew this is the same um yeah. the same question to you but sort of relative to sort of when you were when uh, i was young Christ yeah. <laughs> i just want to say something i want to say something that uh, you know there's a man called bob dylan who my generation know fairly well and he used to get asked about uh what, what, what was he like when he wrote desolation row or uh you know the big songs that he wrote in the uh, late 60s early 70s and he said I don't remember that man. And I, I want to be honest with you. I, I'm going to construct an identity about what I was like at 25. But I don't really remember what it's like or who I was in the visceral sort of lived experience of being 25, 26, 27. I don't, I don't really remember that guy that well. Now, that's kind of curious because am I the imposter? But I did live that way. I did live like that. So I just mentioned that. The other thing I just want to say, if I may, about imposter syndrome, because I remember going to a club and there was a guy came on and he had a, a radio set like that, about that big, which was a cassette player. This is going back a while, right? And he played, he put it on the stage and he put on this music and he started dancing backwards and forwards along the front of the stage. That was the first time I ever saw David Bowie live. 
Okay, and there was about Meg ten of us in the room. There's your, there's your name drop. Go on. <laughs> You're taking name drops to a new level today. It's yeah. incredible. Incredible. So the question about what is imposter, you know, we, we, we all kind of dress up to be something, don't we? And uh, later on, I can t- talk about when I first got a legitimate job, how I went for that, you know. But I mean, the point is, you know, you become something, and then you become something else, and then you become something else. And I just think maybe it was the time when I was young, but it didn't seem unusual to see this guy walking up and down the stage because the band on after that, lumping their PAs on, uh, and there was about 15 of us by that time. The lead singer was a guy called Sid Barrett, and that was a band called The Pink Floyd, and there was about 30 of us in this room, and on comes this band and you know they were pretty good you know <laughs> yeah, I mean, they weren't bad <laughs> they weren't bad and what well, i can remember the night you know and then we went on dad and, you've won with the <laughs> well, i mean later on you had to be very cool in those days it didn't feel like apart from, apart from the fact i was about 18 you know it, apart from the fact what i was trying to do was probably get laid unsuccessfully <laughs> Most of the time. Sorry, Rose. That's what you do <laughs> when you're... definitely seven. not going. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah. But that's what you do when you're a young guy. I mean, I can vaguely remember that. <laughs> so don't worry Selective about... Selective memory. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm trying to. But I mean, <laughs> don't worry about imposter syndrome. You know, you just become the thing by be- becoming better at it. Then you become it. And no one's born as any one thing, are we? We don't know. I mean, without getting too philosophical... We are human beings becoming. We're not human products. You only see a product, you know, you see it and you think that's the product. No, that guy started off playing middle C on a piano. And then mm. he learned that man and off, you know, second concerto or whatever. But I mean, you start off ding, ding, ding. And then something happens in you, like a like a like the old flower coming out of the ground. It's got something. And we might go, oh, self-belief, self oh, who the hell knows what all that stuff is? Maybe the fertilizer and the summer's in the right place. And something happened and you could play middle C quicker and better. And so you went to a few other notes on the piano and you become something. You don't you don't have to worry about who you are. You just keep becoming. I love that. I love that. Yep. I love that. (laughs) And honestly, I could listen to both of you talk all day about this and the the different and the different perceptions of this. Also, you talk about uh, talk about Pink Floyd. And you talk about becoming someone. Um, I uh, I grew up being taught how to play the guitar by my dad, and uh, his favorite guitarist of all time, and now one of my heroes, is uh, a young man by the name of David Gilmour, uh, who's a rather exceptional guitar player. But I remember growing up thinking there is no chance, and I was sort of trying to play bits on the guitar. There is no chance. I'm not telling the listeners that I'm now David <laughs> Gilmour reincarnate, but I'm like reasonably okay at the guitar. But I remember thinking, that's that's so far away. And I felt like, you know, even that age, like even when I was 9, 10, I remember feeling like imposter-like in my ability to play an instrument that I really, really loved and really enjoyed playing. Yeah, when I was 17, I used to go down this folk club in, in Greek Street, uh, Greek Street in London. Mm. Um, and this club, you paid 10 shillings. That's what it was like, old money. And you could stay there, they had all-nighters, right, on a Friday night and Saturday night. And that meant there were a few junkies there, but there were some first-class musicians. There was a guy who used to play there called John Martin. I don't know if you've ever heard of John Martin. Right? So Martin used to have a regular gig there, you know, and there were, Bert Yance used to play down there. Um, before my time, actually, Paul Simon and, and, 
and a lot of other people that played there, including Mr. Dillon. But, and there was just a little folk club around the corner, and that was called Les Cousins. And there was a woman called Meg who used to turn up there. And Meg was a, was a woman who lived on the street. And she would come down there and she would sing Danny Boy at the top of her voice. <laughs> and people would give her a couple of bob and she went out. Every night she was there. And the other guy was a guy called Divinity Bill. And I'm going to say this because I've never heard anyone talk about Divinity Bill. And there was also a guy called Jumping Jack. Uh, Jumping Jack was an amazing. He was a busker and he used to dress up like a pirate and dance on the cinema cues. Divinity Bill was a, was a dosser, right? A tramp, a tramp. And I got to, I befriended him. Don't ask me why. And I took him back to my house where my, I lived with my mum and dad when they weren't there and fed him a couple of times. And we ended up deciding to go to the first Isle of Wight concert together. Now, Divinity Bill was probably in his 50s and I was about 18 or 19. So we set off hitchhiking. Now, the thing with Bill, he never washed. <laughs> now, if, if, you, if I can give you any wisdom as an old man, don't share a small tent with a bloke who doesn't wash. <laughs> we, so we ended up camping uh, somewhere with a view to going to the Isle of Wight the next day. We were down the south coast. When we woke up, it turned out we camped in a boys' grammar school playground <laughs> by young guys, right? And by that time, I had convinced Bill to, to put his feet out the, front, the back of the tent because I couldn't stand the smell. And this, so we, the long and the short of it was, um, we never got to the Isle of Wight. Who was the imposter in that situation? You or Bill? Well, I, I don't, I didn't feel like an imposter, really. I, I, I you know, I don't think back on it. How innocent can you be? <laughs> you know, the risk of being asphyxiated by bad feet, how, you know, was <laughs> the worst thing that happened. But, you know. oh, that might be one of my <laughs> favourite stories I've ever heard on this podcast. I think it's not sure if any of that's any use to but it is absolutely true. And, you know, John Martin was a beautiful young guy, right? And this guy could play the guitar phenomenally even then. What an incredible story that was. And <laughs> I was going to go on and ask Rose what she maybe had learnt or picked up from uh, her father over the years. I'm hoping some of the content from that is not what you've picked up, Rose. <laughs> no, although... Dad, Lessons learned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What I have learned is that, firstly, as a young person with an old older dad sorry you sort of think they've always had it sorted and that was just reassuring to me oh okay actually you didn't have a clue what you were doing in your 20s and that 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 has become more clear to me over time speaking to both my parents actually you know my mum had a drastic career change and trained as a lawyer at 36 and and dad I mean I'm sure you'll say but you know you were in computer sales and then became a drama therapist and I think for me it was like whatever I'm doing now is probably going to change by the time I'm 30 and then probably going to change again when I'm 35. It's going to keep changing. And, and um, something that you've said to me before, dad, is that life is a series of scripts and I'm picking up a, a new script at the moment. I'm going to try it out. If I love it, I'll stick with it. If I don't like it, I'll, I'll put it down and I'll pick up another script. And it's just made me feel like life is really, really long and I'm trying something out. I might hate it or I might love it. And if I hate it, it's fine. I, I'll just try something else. And it's just so liberating feeling like that. But I, I do feel very lucky because I think if it wasn't for my dad and my mum, I don't think I would have been courageous enough to have that school of thought. Because actually, I think most parents of that generation get a career when they're young and kind of stick with it. And I think I'm very fortunate to have had parents that have lived 
multiple lives and I've always been told that I can reinvent myself whenever I want and that's so refreshing that is so liberating to go you know what like if this doesn't work out I'm going to reinvent myself as something else and to remind yourself of that gives you that kind of youthful spirited confidence of oh the world's my oyster I know that's so cliche but it's like actually I can really be whatever I want and and this pandemic made me do that again it made me just go I can kind of do whatever I want. I was kind of trapping myself in thinking that I had to be an actor because I'd gone to uni and I'd gone to drama school. And, and I, and I w- probably will continue to be an actor and I'll be an actor again in the future. But I also want to try out other things. Like, let me play some other roles for a bit. And that was such a liberating and exciting feeling. I commend people. I think it's incredible, the people that, despite how the arts have been treated this last year and how much they've suffered and stuff hats off to people that stick with theatre and acting and things like that and I but I I also encourage if you can ask yourself and this is what happened with me if the theatre's closed and acting is off the cards for a bit and at least it was a bit for a while if you ask yourself okay if I can't do that what else would I be interested in if that question fills you with dread, then you're probably on the right path. You're probably doing the right thing by sticking with the acting, sticking with the theatre. But for me, if I'm really, really honest, when I said to myself, right, I can't do that. I can't do the acting right now. I can't do the theatre right now. What else? What, What other interests exists in me? I was so excited. And I was like, well, shit, I'm so excited by other options as well. And I think that was a real telltale sign that there was a lot out there that fires me up you know that I'm actually also really passionate about but bringing it back to dad and and my mum like I think they gave me the courage to go well try something else yeah you're interested in that have a go at that you worked in prisons for a bit why don't you try to get a job in that and and that was so exciting I remember going on a run and I literally ran the fastest I've ever run because I felt free I was like I've just freed myself of going but I must be an actor you know I've trained in it and I've I'd freed myself of that thought and I've gone oh my god what else can I do like all these <laughs> I, other jobs that's I so think cool. that's that's interesting because we, we talked a lot of on, on the pod and with a few other guests as well about the pandemic making a lot of people realize that there's more to their skill set there's more to their life than just maybe the one thing they were stuck in before or the one thing they were pursuing before and we'll obviously talk more about that what i found really interesting was it's kind of a paradox you accidentally kind of said which was that life's really long and yeah life can be really long can be really long um and there's obviously a plenty of time within that to make a success of lots of things but also life can be really short as well Mm -hmm. so it's important that i think the perspective on it is that you know you're right find things that that fulfill you and if they're not fulfilling you bloody well find another one because if you're stuck in something that you're not enjoying and that's the last thing you do that's your final act of your life and you never know when it might end if that's mm. your final act stuck in a job that you didn't want to do and you didn't have maybe you had the power to change it and you hadn't changed it i you know I, we don't have the power of hindsight after death but you know what i mean it's like mm. don't waste because you, you never know you never bloody know stick with what is giving you that passion at that time mm. and if it ain't giving you it anymore bin it find another at the end of the day, everyone could do with being a bit more like Divinity Bill, right? <laughs> he didn't know where he was going to be the following day. And within three days, he was on his way to the Isle of Wight. Didn't make it, but he gave it a good go. And we could all do with being a bit more like him or Meg, right? Let's just all sing Danny Boy once in a while. Uh, <laughs> oh, Danny Boy. Oh, don't say him off. Don't Sorry. say him off. You're listening to the Quarter Life Chronicles with Duncan and Matt 
Matthew and Rose, thank you so much once again for being on. It's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you so far. So we're going to move on to something we've alluded to a bit earlier on, which is this idea of your careers, your respective careers, and how your approaches to those careers might have changed, how the careers themselves might have changed. So I suppose the very basic question is talk to us a little bit about your careers, what they entail, what you've learned from those careers and what you've learned about yourself as well. Rose, we'll, we'll start with you. What what, uh, what are you up to at the minute and what, what's your chosen career currently? Well, it's not my chosen career. I've, I've accidentally fallen into it. So I'll be very brief on this because I don't know how permanent it is, but I'm currently a music teacher. <sighs> don't know how I've got here uh yeah totally accidental actually I started working so I was made redundant started working in a school as a TA they accidentally found out I played musical instruments and now I'm teaching GCSE music um and it's really as simple as that it's been great it's been challenging and I needed a challenge basically I, I wanted to be stretched so I'm very grateful to be working I'm grateful to be in this job do I see it going on for much longer I don't really know but what has happened recently in terms of careers is I was made to feel as many people I imagine were also made to feel very disposable in my previous side hustle jobs I was replaced or kicked out so easily that I just thought I don't want to feel this disposable anymore and so I decided that whatever I did in the next year, I wanted to train as something. And I want to be very careful with how I say this, because I know there was a lot of controversy over that advert about saying, you know, if you worked in the arts, retrain. I, I absolutely don't stand by that. I think if you worked in the arts, stick with the arts. But for me, I wanted to add some more strings to my bow. Pardon the pun, because I really am just teaching violin a lot at the moment. But um, And I thought I want to set myself up to be in a position whereby I have something to fall back on that is still fulfilling I want it to still be really stimulating so I applied for a training course um, to be a social worker and a training course to be a teacher because I didn't know which one I was interested in or which one I wanted to pursue most they're currently still I've got the offer from the social worker I more or less got the offer from the teaching training thing I think I'm going to go down the social work route um, and train and you get you get paid a salary whilst you train and again it just goes back to I've done some stuff in the past that I loved I, I worked in some prisons that I've I absolutely loved I worked with vulnerable children that I loved and found massively rewarding and I kind of just connected the dots and was like okay if this is the kind of work that really fires me up what other careers could involve that sort of work and social work's seems to be guiding me more that way and I also had a big realization actually from Becky your Becky Duncan <laughs> who really just shone a light on how creativity because I was thinking oh my god am I giving up the creative life am I giving up acting am I this am I that and um she just said like you know creativity still very much is part of your life I'm still doing a lot of creative things it doesn't have to be just my main career I'm in a Shakespeare company that I plan on continuing to be in and we rehearse every week and I set up a book club in the pandemic and that for me is a massive creative outlet and actually that has freed up some other space in my life where I've gone you know what if I want to train as a social worker that does involve writing essays and it will involve some quite like hard graft that's fine because I've got creative outlets that are still very much in full swing so that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. And that's probably what my next year or so is going to look like. 
And same question to Matthew, I guess. So I wanted to be an actor when I was 16. So I left home and I went to an A-level place and did drama. And, I'm, and I earned my living by charring and cleaning people's houses. And um, I'm a successful actor today. No, I'm not. <laughs> I just want to be clear, you know, that when I talk about that period, it's kind of, it's easy, you know, how do you tell a story that doesn't cover it in certain amount of gloss? Well, there is a certain amount of gloss, but it ain't the only gloss worth looking at. I just want to say that. It's very important, I think. Some in my first jobs were pretty shitty, uh, you know, I, I worked on the docks in Amsterdam. I worked on building sites. I did all sorts of things. But I wanted to be a filmmaker and, and an actor. The two things were simultaneous to me. When I went to my careers teacher, they sent me uh, to a dressmaking factory in, in Brixton because that's the kind of school I went to. I think, you know, I, I was in a comprehensive school in Wandsworth opposite the prison that's closed down. That's where and I, exactly where I live right now. Literally, yeah, opposite, I live prison. right up, yeah, I live right up, but in the prison, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Trinity, but anyway. That was where I belong. <laughs> I think I can quite genuinely say that I didn't really feel like I wanted, that I had a career thing in mind. And uh, art and was always really fundamentally important to me, but not in a kind of la di way. You know, I, I was trying to do stuff with art. And theatre for me was a form of, self-development and I spent a lot of time in theatre work that was about developing oneself whatever that means and never made any money out of it I wasn't trying to make a living it wasn't really about anything else but a sense that this is what life was about this is what it meant to to have a life to practice the art of living and find out what that meant you know a very abstract stuff if you like but it was very it was a lot of fun as a young person it's got a lot of fun and um it wasn't until, uh, and I, I, I did train in filmmaking, funnily enough. I didn't get a serious job. I, I worked in education, making uh, audiovisual stuff in schools. But then my, uh, my serious job was selling photocopiers. And it was the first time that I came to realise that there were people expecting me to do something and make money and do all kinds of stuff. And it was really a shock, actually. It was a real shock. But their money was good. And then you get married if, or you, you've, you start having a family. And I met this guy in this company and he was very successful. And I remember saying to him, you've got a lot of luck. You know, you're always selling photocopiers. He said, uh, well, I get up at six o'clock in the morning every day and I walk around the factories and I walk around the, the estates and I put my card through the door and I make my own luck. You know, and it sounds very corny, but that's how he did it. <laughs> and it was a really tough time because I suddenly found I had to feed a kid and I had to feed a, a wife. And um, the company was shit. I felt it was so macho. And although I'm sort of a bit of a geezer, I'm not that macho. And, they, you know, it was very, very tough. If you didn't do the thing you said you were going to do on the Monday, you were fired on the Friday. I learned that if you make a mistake, you've got to make sure that nobody knows. So acting became very useful. And, and I didn't do it maliciously. And I, and I, I learned also that, you know, to, to sell, you've got to be honest. So it was a very curious mixture of stuff. I could tell you stories about all that, but I'm not sure which ones would get me into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, pho- the photocopy industry are listing carefully. <laughs> I'm not sure there's an industry anymore. No, I was about to say. <laughs> and I'm also dyslexic, so I'm not particularly good at adding stuff up. And when you're doing complex financial deals... You know, you've got to be able to work your way through that. And But I really basically couldn't stand the culture. And it was, I became, what happened was, I couldn't sell photocopiers for love nor money. So they put me in charge of fax machines. Now, 
fax machines, you know, you don't know anything about them probably because they just sit as a piece of software on a computer. But um, I was marketing manager for the Midlands for the, for the fax machines and there just happened to be a postal strike. So when there's a postal strike, no one can deliver letters. Everyone wanted a fax machine. So I became the number one fax manager in the whole of England and I won all these prizes. I got taken out. This is absolutely true. I got taken out to dinner by the managing director of the region saying, how come, you know, we, we, we need to promote you because you're so good at this. And he said, the only problem is you've only had three jobs, you know, in my career. It's not quite true, but I didn't put all the others down. <laughs> and I learned then that, you know, that, you know this is a big company yeah. and they were looking for people who would take risks and people who take risks are people who lose jobs and find that, find their way back again. So was I a big enough risk taker to move to the next level of management? And I thought, oh, geez, I don't want to do that. That's not really what I want to do. So I decided that you can, oh, that's what happened. I went into this place in Leicester called the British United Shoe Manufacturing Company. Half of Leicester was a shoe factory called the British United Shoe Manufacturing Company. And I went in there with a fax machine. And the guy said to me, look, come this way. I'm still a young guy. He showed me this hall and it was huge. It was like a football pitch inside. And he said, See that box in the corner there? That is a mainframe computer. If you come back in two years, every inch of this floor will be covered in those. You're in the wrong business. That's actually what happened. So I thought, I'm going to get in the other one. <laughs> I didn't know, you know, laptops weren't, it didn't exist in those days. The internet didn't exist, okay? That's how ancient I am. <laughs> right? I decided I was going to go and sell computers, and I needed to create the idea that I could do that. So I essentially, coming from an acting background, behaved as though I could do it. And I went for interviews and I was scared shitless because I got a wife, a kid and a mortgage. And I got a job at this big French computer company. I had a million and a half pounds target to get in 12 months. So I then became a very successful computer salesman. And all kinds of things happened in terms of getting promoted and finding myself in different companies, going around the world, standing in the line behind this guy called Bill Gates. You probably don't remember floppy disks, do you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This guy, we were selling a fingerprint system. Uh, and I, was, I went to various parts of the world selling fingerprint systems. This English guy had designed, but he was a mathematician from Cambridge. He'd found a mathematical formula that predicted probability, which had been written by a, something like a 17th century Jesuit priest. And he turned it into a computation that allowed you to identify fingerprints. And I used to go around trying to sell this system with him and his, his partner. That guy became the first... English billionaire with IT. I went in to see him and he said, this floppy disk has got something on it, which I think you'd be interested in. If you put that into your computer, you can search the internet. And I thought, what the hell does that mean? Autonomy. He founded a company called Autonomy. This was a search engine. I mean, nobody knew what search engines were. The internet was like, you could send emails on it. That was it. I don't think there was anything else on it in those days. And I held this floppy disk and said, do you want to come into business with me? We need a sales director. And I remember coming back home and saying to my wife, they want me to do this thing. I think it's going to be huge. I've no idea what it is. And she said to me, we're not really in the business of making a lot of money, are we? We want to do other things. So I didn't do it. I think I'm right in saying that software became the, the, the engine that Google used, you know, all this time ago. So there were interesting stuff going on there. But I'm quite glad I didn't do that with hindsight. But when I got serious about trying to make money and needing to feed a family, I got serious about it. And I did that. But I'm glad I got out of it in the end. I was going to say, you obviously really detailed and amazingly explained there how you came to a crossroads in your life, didn't you? Because you, yeah. you were on the path to something that could have been potentially financially incredible and potentially globally well, huge. But you didn't know that at the time. 
you know, and you had other, you had other things going on, and and it was a, it was a crossroads in a moment that you changed, I guess. And my first wife became critically ill, so I was a young guy with a five year old daughter, and and my first wife was dying, hmm. and you know, it made me go back to thinking about why theatre had mattered to me, why the arts had mattered, why the idea of human life as a kind of unfolding artistic endeavour had mattered to me. That was kind of a big thing for me. And I was in a pretty bad way after her death because I've got another daughter that's older than Rose. And I still had to produce about a million pounds worth of revenue every year in that job. You didn't, didn't get compassionate leave, you know. It also made me think about how I valued and how I judged people. So I just want to put that in because it, that was quite a profound thing that changed in me about, yeah. about that. And I kind of figured... Whatever I do, um, I don't want to just be about making money or pursuing a career. Yeah, and obviously you went on to change careers. And I wanted yeah, to just tell us briefly what you went on to sort of go into I, next. Uh, I ended up in a big company in charge of developing business out of the introduction of the euro. I also wanted to, I got involved with organisational change because introducing new currency changes new beha- changes behaviours in all sorts mm. of ways. And I got really interested in the place of art in change, essentially. Mm. So I could see how systems change, but how do you actually change attitudes? How do you affect stuff like that? So Mm. I got involved with that. And there was a a consultancy based in Surrey University called the Centre for Human Potential, run by a guy called John Hopkins. He's not Hoppy from the hippie days, (laughs) who wrote something called the Facilitator's Handbook. And it's an extraordinarily intense book about how to affect change in people and organisations. But it sort of struck me. I went along, I met him when I was about 17. But I decided that um, I didn't want to do that. And I saw this thing called drama therapy. And I thought, what the hell's that? I thought, oh, that's interesting. It's about using theatre to promote change. So I went along and I trained part-time as a drama therapist at a university which was a mixture of heaven and complete bullshit. But that's the nature of training. I was also 50 years old at that time. And it was tough. It was difficult. And I used to drive along in a company car, park, get out of my suit and put on my drama therapy clothes. And I I did my MA. By the time I did the MA, I was working on mergers and acquisitions in a company which was looking at a German hair care company that was being taken over by Procter & Gamble. It wasn't. It wasn't Alpacin caffeine shampoo, was it? I always see their adverts. It wasn't them by any chance, was it? Other caffeine shampoos are available. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll just I'll just be molding some coffee into your hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you could see how well I did with a haircut. But I mean, the, the point was that I was back in business, so I was doing a, a merger and acquisitions, quite a nasty thing, and uh, people get hurt in it. So I was look, I was doing all that stuff, but I was doing it as a drama therapist, consulting with a management company. The long and the short of it was. That one day at a meeting, a drama therapy meeting, I was still doing this business consultancy. Someone said to me, can you go and be a real therapist for, for three days next week? They just want someone for three days in this school in Slough. And I was working, I just finished a project in Citigroup, which is a huge bank, about glass ceilings and sexual discrimination against women. But it was both caused by men and it was caused by women so it's quite a complicated project and um we were doing live theater and then getting traders to discuss issues you know that kind of stuff so i walked into this school in slough and as i walked in you could see windsor castle down the road right there's a kid coming in with no shoes on as i walked into the reception and it was a pretty ropey school this teacher put a fiver across the counter and put out a pair of shoes and put this kid's shoes on so I started working there for these three days 
And on the third day, as I was walking down the corridor, a fight broke out. And I got involved with helping with the fight without getting involved with the fight, just doing stuff, you know. And this woman came down the corridor and she said, who are you? And I said, "Uh, I'm a therapist. Who are you? She was the head teacher. So I started to talk to her and I ended up coaching the management group. And she was a phenomenal woman. She was taking a sink school. When she first walked into that school, if you want to know about change right because i was making a film about her this is this is a long story but i started to try and make a film about her she said the first day she walked into this school she didn't know if she wanted the job she was stood in the reception area and there was nobody there these two kids came up boys came up to her and said what do you want she said i might become your head teacher and they started laughing she said can you just show me around the school please and she noticed that most of the windows were smashed in this school and as she walked down the corridor she said I noticed this boy urinating against the wall in the corridor and I got really angry. And I said to her, why did you get angry? And she said, because he's pissing his future away. And I thought, I can work for you. And I and I started working for her in that school. I, I didn't, she offered me a, a quite a senior post, but I didn't take it. But I started to work as a therapist in that school and it, it had a profound impact. It had a bit of an impact on Rose's life as well because I came out of city, you know, banking into this bad physical environment with these kids and it was a rough old place and I thought I knew a bit about life but the social inequality I met there just completely knocked me sideways she built a new school there beautiful building we and for the time she was there we did some well she did some fantastic things and I and I enjoyed working there but at the same time I I got invited back to the university that I had trained in to try and make some business opportunities for them and ended up teaching undergraduate psychology and counselling and then teaching therapists and training therapists. And that was one of the most satisfying periods of my life, training people to do the thing I loved. I was just going to ask Rose, actually, I wonder what your sort of perspective is on on what your dad's been through and how it's sort of inspired you in any way or how it's not inspired you in many other ways. How do you feel about everything that you've just heard? I know you've probably heard it all a lot before, but, but I wonder... Well, it's interesting hearing it firsthand sometimes because I, I have my mum's version is considerably shorter and it's basically <laughs> she goes oh yeah yeah your dad used to work in sales and oh god yeah he made loads of money and was really miserable and I just said look this isn't the man I married you need to get happier do something else and then he went and became a drama therapist so that's how <laughs> in 10 <laughs> seconds I thought could have saved half an hour <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that was that was her version and my experience was very much that you know I was very you know I, I am I am quite privileged in many ways I certainly was growing up I do remember getting to secondary school and it was when I was about in year seven again I think it was probably more likely to be mum at least my memory was this and she was like you know our financial situation is really going to shift because your dad isn't going to work in business anymore and he's looking to train as a drama therapist and stuff so my experience I do remember getting to a teenager and being like oh okay our life is shifting now as a family um but I thought it was fucking cool like I I actually did (laughs) I think that's it's a much cooler story I'd much rather say oh yeah you know like I've got some pretty wealthy friends I suppose and all their dads have really boring jobs and I can go, you know what? Yeah, my dad used to do the boring stuff. No offence, dad, but that's sort of how I see it. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, he used to do the boring stuff. 
made some money, got pretty miserable and uh, trained to be a drama therapist. And that is a very short version of of my experience growing up with both parents who really changed their careers mid-30s. And it's all very reassuring to me, to be honest. Would you say, Rose, that maybe that experience of your situation financially having shifted and it being something you took great positives from in the midst of it all, plus the fact that you had role models in both your mum and your dad who have been able to sort of say, oh, we retrained and we, re- we we did something else and we just, we shifted our career focus and it worked really well for us both personally and professionally, has informed your sort of willingness to go, actually, I don't have to be as tunnel vision as maybe I thought I did two, three years ago when I trained to be an actor. Would you say that has massively sort of put you at ease about making that shift yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like right now in this moment, and it might change in a month or two or a year or whatever, and that's fine too. But right now in this moment, my absolute dream, I would love to set up a theatre company for children in care. That's what I, I don't know if anyone's heard of Lem Sisse. He did a lot of poetry workshop with children in care. And I watched, I read his book, um, My Name Is Why, and I watched this documentary. And he'd pulled together children that have had very difficult lives in their very young ages and the power of art and creativity and and in his case poetry and writing and he'd amalgamated the two and I was like that's it that's it that's what I want and I'm going a long way about it so you know for me if I saw myself as a tree this is pretty cliche but I'm just gonna bear with me I'm gonna be really basic for a second you know on one branch i got some acting experience. I've trained as an actor. I've got theatre experience. Great. The other thing I'm really interested in is working with vulnerable people and vulnerable children. And actually, I don't have that much on that branch yet. I don't have that much experience there. So my long path is I'm like, oh, okay, if I do this social work thing for a bit and I learn about how to help people in difficult situations and make positive change, then hopefully, you know, by the time I'm in my 30s or whatever, I can amalgamate both my acting and theatre and creative experience with my social work experience and hopefully create, you know, something else. So actually massively has it influenced me because what I'm pursuing now is temporary. I don't actually want to be a social worker and I'm about to do a social worker course. I don't want to do that. I just want to learn the skills, learn the tools, get the experience and in five years time, I, I'm hoping I'm going to be doing something else. And then five years after that, I'm going to be doing something else. And I think that's completely down to my parents reinventing themselves over and over. I mean, Christ, they both had, well, not getting too personal, but different marriages, different houses, different towns, you know, like lots of different things. And it's just this idea of you can just totally reinvent life as you know it. So it's just quite an exciting thought, but patience is needed, I think. So as a poet who died recently called Mary Oliver, I don't know if you've come across her. She writes about, I want to be a bride. I think this is it's a paraphrase, but you can look it up and get the right words. I want to be a bride to the curiosity of life. I want to embrace life with both hands, uh, with both arms. I, I don't want to go out of this world moaning about what I couldn't be, you know, whatever it was, that kind of phrase. The idea of embracing life, if there's a myth that is that 25 is a quarter of your life, if there's a myth around there, there's another myth about careers. There's a myth about the certainty of life. I, I prefer the myth that there is a beauty in life. And you just grab hold of it. And sometimes it's joyous. Sometimes it's pretty uncomfortable. But life itself is awesome. 
And I, I was with a man the other day, uh, and there's a book, I've got it just over there. It's called A Responsibility to Awe. I think if you have one thing to say to somebody that's important, you're duty bound by the thing that made you, by this incredible machine we occupy, you know, to awe, to have awe in your life about the fact that you're alive. Whatever it is, just hold on to awe. And it's a simple thing. You know, look up at the stars and go, I actually know fuck all about that. Isn't it awesome? <laughs> you know what I mean? And when some you meet some kid, you know, you can just, or some young person or some old person, just what an extraordinary thing to meet another person. Just yeah. extraordinary. I mean, and if you're lucky I mean, enough to be in love with someone, what an awesome experience. I'm just in awe of both of you. Just this like zest for life, this desire to like sort of not let things get you down, not let hardships get you down, like adapt and thrive, but not not adapt like just out of, just for survival's sake, adapt and change because you want to and you want to try things and you want to experience things and mm. and i think it's absolutely incredible i think we exist in a in a world where matthew like you sort of alluded to and rose as well we are in danger of like settling and i think even as an artist like as an actor like like i am and like i try to be i can settle sometimes i can be like this is the way things are and actually they don't have to be that way and what a waste of time that is to settle. You know, settling is almost the opposite of awe, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? There's nothing awe-inspiring about being settled, is there? You know, it's, it's so... Let me say something to you, Lai. You know, if you've got a choice between being restless, a restless artist or a settled man, if you have a choice in that, then you're probably in the wrong place. If you have no choice, then abandon yourself sensibly to being an artist, to taking that path. Whatever it does, don't worry about the settled bit. Because if you've got a choice, then you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. Oh, look, look at that. There's, 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 a, mean, cross, there's a crossroads. <laughs> I mean, tonight, listeners, remember the night is the night that I hired Matthew Trussman to be my personal drama therapist. You heard it here first. I, I want to bottle whatever that is up and carry it around with me. Trust me on this. Amazing. You missed one thing out there. You want to pay for it. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, listeners, this will be the last podcast we ever do. We're now going to give up our careers yeah. and we're going to become herbologists <laughs> in the wild. How did you know? Off the back of that, though, I did really want to say like something that I've just taken away from this year, just this pandemic year, is, is yeah, yeah. championing people's bravery, which I've absolutely loved. Like people have kind of exposed themselves in like their secret loves I found and I know this has been mentioned on your podcast before but setting up whatever it is you know I know people and it's not even about retraining necessarily but I do know people that are retraining as yoga teachers or support workers or whatever but I also know people that have come out as like passionate bakers and they want to advertise that and like really getting into the crux of things that they really love and going oh hey guys this is also me maybe I've kept this under wraps a little bit but I now want to sh show the world and I, and I really champion that and, I, and I'm all for when someone says to me oh Rose like I'm thinking of doing this but I'm not really sure I'm like bloody do it like now's mm. the time we've had this year that splits us on its head you know what a great time to just go actually you know what I also love this and I want to tell everyone about it so I think it's been a it's been a courageous year which has been great to see in many ways Rose if you could just tell our listeners wonderfully you have mentioned them you have a book club and you have a Shakespeare company so why don't you please just give us the details of both so that our listeners know where to find both those amazing things Duncan you are a good pal <laughs> you're plugging for me um, 
So I set up a book club called Books Not Boys. Um, and I set that up a year ago now, actually, just under a year ago. Controversial title. Controversial <laughs> title. I'm sorry, the guests, the people here right this moment are not invited to it. But um, it is an all-female book club. And I set it up not because I'm a reader. This is my USP, as it were, I suppose. I was never a big bookworm. I was never a big reader. I, I still don't actually count myself as a massive reader, whatever that means. But I discovered reading. I read a couple of great books and I thought, wow, I really want to talk to people about it. So I set up Books Not Boys. Check it out on Instagram. And anyone is welcome. Any female identifying person is welcome to it. And I wanted to make it clear that it is about the community of girls or women who wish to connect and who can find joy and escapism in reading. So that that was born out of the pandemic and that has really got me through this last year. It's restored my faith in humanity. It's restored my faith in taking a leap and just trying something out because I thought I can't set up a book club. I'm a really slow reader. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about what I'm cooking for dinner half the time and I'm reading but this book club has kind of opened a whole new world for me and the girls that are in it currently just really get me through and really keep me reading so that was born out of the pandemic and I've loved it and I'm in Shake It Up Theatre Company and Improvised Shakespeare Theatre Company and we have been rehearsing every single week religiously on zoom and i cannot tell you the challenge that is improvising on oh, zoom we know how hard theater is on zoom me and lala well versed <laughs> yeah you guys like it's it's been really challenging at times but we've really stuck with it and you know with the light is at the end of the tunnel and we actually have some shows lined up that has been yet another creative outlet that has really kept on going i can um, i can vouch for shake it up they are fabulous fabulous uh <laughs> improvisers i'm not just saying it like the way they do it is is phenomenal check them out on all the socials because they are you know i'm not biased not biased at all my girlfriend's not in it she's not i promise yeah, i was gonna say big up, <laughs> shake it up, big up rose big up bex and also big up ed k if you're listening yeah! <laughs> Love, love and uh, Fred Rosa and Fred Rosa and and everyone who's in it. Yeah. Sorry if I missed you up. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, just had loads of shout outs, loads of plug in right at the end of a conversation that was about not career stuff. Don't don't choose your careers. <laughs> You're listening to the Quarter Life Chronicles. Don't forget to follow and share on Instagram and subscribe on Spotify. Guys, thank you so much. It has been so good having our first ever father and daughter combo on the podcast. It has not failed to deliver. So thank you both so, so much. So it's time for a bit of fun. Time for a bit of games. And starting off, we're going to throw it out, do a little bit of a different order this week, because why not? We're a bit rogue. And I'm in charge of the moan. I've nicked it off Lyle. So (laughs) we're after, for both of you here, we're after a minute's worth of what we essentially call sweating the small stuff we want you to to really go off on one about something that just you know it's it's quite small in a lot of circles they'd be like well that's not a big deal but to you it's a massive deal and we want to hear how irritated you get by this potentially quite small thing so we need a minute or so from both of you let's start with matthew for this one are you ready matthew yeah i'm ready because you're starting go okay so we have a dog and this dog is a lovely creature. The only time it freaks out is if I happen to be on the phone to a well-known telecoms company and I get held up by the call centre. And this is no word of a lie. The dog actually wants to leave the room. 
This is absolutely true. In fact, if my wife and I are having an argument, we know if it's serious because the dog wants to leave the room. Quite often when we're having an argument, the dog just wants to stay there because we're not really arguing. So the thing that I'm really pissed off about is when someone says, your call is important to us. Because it's a complete fucking lie. If that call was important, they would have paid enough people to answer the goddamn phones, wouldn't they? So you think about it, they're actually explicitly lying to you. You're not important to them. You're getting paid minimum wages. The poor bugger who's going to answer that phone is going to get all the shit and anger I've got about whatever the phone number problem is. And the poor bugger's on probably just about the, the minimum wage. Your call is important to me, or us rather. What a load of toss. And the second thing is get rid of the bloody music, for God's sake. It's bad enough telling me that the call's important when I have to listen to some whirling shitty thing at, at an impossible acoustic level with no bass or mid-range in it. Do me a favour. I'll have silence, please. Thank you. I mean, so Again, much of that is just brilliant. I have so much to say, but we don't have the time. No, I, <laughs> so, love I love it all. I love it all. Just, I think all of us can relate. Rose, how do you follow that? You're going to have to try. <laughs> yeah, okay. Mine's quite on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, so my pet hate thing that really riles me up is something that I also do I was actually explaining this to my boyfriend Will earlier and he was like but that is you and it's overused captions on social media so I can I swear to god especially this weekend and last weekend if I see another person sat in the sun with their apparel spritz which by the way is also me but it's the caption that then says living my best life. And it's like, I can't, I cannot see that caption again. I cannot see living my best life. Another caption that is overused that really winds me up and also quite offends me. is when people say like, my friends are better than yours. Have you seen that one? When people say my friends are better than yours and it's a picture of them and all their friends. And I'm just thinking, why have you said that? Because actually that's not true. Our friends are probably on par. (laughs) My friends are probably just as good as yours. Like it's just, overused the captions for overused type of photos like I don't know a boomerang of everyone cheersing their drinks and it's like captioned living my best life and then no doubt I'll I'll be like two drinks in and I'll do exactly that so I I am also epitomizing the thing that really riles me up so there we go guys overused captions gets me I mean, big fan of that, but also 100% do it myself as well. Like, oh, yeah. I'm 100% yeah. that guy. I am. So, I'm yeah. the apple spritz in the sun, for sure. But I think you can be that guy. You can be that guy. But then it's like accepting that you've done it and then like, right, I won't give my followers any more of that for a bit. I'll just give them a break from that because, they, <laughs> you know, that's a lot. But it's, you know, like I get it. It's people that do it every weekend or also, every other day. And you're like, you can't be having this much fun. Stop. <laughs> and you have to ask yourself as well, like, when people say living my best life I just sort of think are you I mean you got on a sweaty tube to get there you probably queued 45 minutes for a table you probably paid 20 pounds for that drink you're probably gonna have to not go out tomorrow night because you feel so crap and you spent all your money like are you living your best my best life would be a millionaire on a tropical island like that's not my best life ah but what we've learned tonight is that you could be a millionaire but you might not be enjoying (laughs) it okay you might be selling photocopiers 
and you might not be enjoying it, Rose. So, so true. So, so how many true. times did Divinity Bill caption something living my best life? <laughs> Probably zero. How many days was he living his best life? Absolutely every day. Then we can guarantee ourselves of that. From the absolutely sublime to, we hope, the continually sublime. The quarter lifetime capsule. So what we're looking for here is three items. An essential item, a luxury item, and an unexpected item that perfectly sum up how you've dealt with a quarter life crisis so far. So you can look back on it in years to come and go, yeah, those three things got me through my quarter life years. Or Matthew, in the case of yourself, things you could look back on at the time maybe that you really enjoyed and really got you through your 20s. Or you could go with a different take and go on something you might put in now as an essential luxury or unexpected item. So we're going to flip it on its head once again. And Rose, we're going to start with you. Can you start with your essential item and take us through your three contributions to the quarter life time capsule. Okay, so my essential items is probably a very obvious one. My essential item that got me through my quarter life crisis has to be, and I couldn't not say this, would be my very, very close circle of friends and my family. I just would say that I'm pretty, uh, well, I'll get onto that in a bit, but I'm fairly resourceful in how I uh, call upon my friends, um, which actually then leads me to my luxury item. And my luxury item would be voice notes. <laughs> Which actually is 100% true. I was like, am I really going to say something this fickle? I love voice notes. I love voice noting. And I'll tell you for why. If you ring someone up and you leave an answer machine, I mean, does any, a voicemail, sorry, does anyone do that anymore? I don't think they do. But when you do a voicemail, you go, hi, just calling and um, give me a ring back. Nah. If you have a phone call with someone, you're demanding of their time. So you're saying, look, I want to speak to you on the phone. You've got to listen to everything I've got to say. You've also got to respond and you've got to do it in the moment when I want that moment and I'm going to ring you. Oh, stressful. I don't really like people calling me. Texting doesn't get the emotion across. So voice notes, the beauty of voice notes, you, I use them as like a personal diary and I have to give a shout out to Rebecca Gibbs uh, because I wish I was exaggerating, but I probably send her about a 10 minute voice note every day on my walk to school. And the beauty of it is, is that I can say to her, you don't need to listen to that. It's a load of crap. If you want to listen and you're bored, yeah, go ahead. But it's there if you want it, if not. And I feel great because I've got, it's like a personal diary and I've got everything I want to say out there on a voice recording. And, and it, it's her choice if she wants to listen to it. She can zone out. She can put it in another room. But more often than not, I mean, I sent her an 11-minute voice note today and she hit all the pointers. And she she sent me back about a nine-minute voice note. And she'd remembered everything I said. And, and so that's also a luxury item. It's, it's a voice note and having a friend who is willing to listen and respond to that voice note. I think that is a beautiful thing. So that's my luxury item unexpected item would be it's it's kind of on the other end of the spectrum but my unexpected item would be folk music for lots of reasons folk music is the kind of music of my childhood it's folk music doesn't have any words so when I've sent my 15 minute voice note I quite often don't want to listen to words anymore and so that's a really comforting thing for me and it sort of grounds me it reminds me of who I am and where I've come from so I would say that's my unexpected item absolutely brilliant contributions all three loved absolutely all of those what i would say is on your luxury item i was never really a huge fan of uh, of, of voice messages or voice <gasps> notes on whatsapp and then 
me and Dunk set this podcast up, and now all we do is voice note each other two, so, yeah. three, four minutes. I'm right there with you. I'm the uh, same. I, I used to detest them, but I actually am slowly getting into them yeah. because they're quite useful for planning work. <laughs> and quite often, quite often, Dunks will start a voice note with, "Sorry, mate, it's just easier to do a voice note." Like, like, <laughs> no, like, 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 like he's what's being, happened to me, Rose? Like, like he's being put out. Right, and like it's quite frustrating, and then thirty seconds in, he's like, "But by the way, yeah, wicked, great." It's like it's like his whole mood shifts in the space of two minutes. But what's intriguing is eleven-minute voice notes back, nine-minute voice note back. We'll both get like three minutes in, and we'll be like, "Oh, I'm waffling now. Sorry, have a great day, mate." Bye, bye, bye. And then that'd be it. So you know, there's, yeah, there's, there's a difference in there. Seventeen-minute voice notes, and I have to give them chapter headings. Yeah, love that. Absolutely brilliant. Well, incredible contributions as <laughs> ever. Brilliant work. Thank you so much, Rose. Matthew. Ice cream is really important. Like, I'm not sure which one of those three it is, but I absolutely love good ice cream. And I know in the past somebody has, has, has raved on about the wrong type of thing being called ice cream, but I like the real stuff. Uh, I, I fell in love with it when I was living on a boat in Holland. And then I also fell in love with it when I was in Vermont with a, with a very early uh, girl. The home of Ben and Jerry's. You're absolutely right. And they, you know, when it, where it was founded was in was in Burlington University. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I used to go there back in 1970 something or the other. And there was probably Ben and Jerry behind the bloody counter. I don't know, but <laughs> I'm so I wasn't even going to say that because I didn't think anyone knew that story. But that's where it came. No, from. yeah, my my parents went on holiday there, and they went to the the, the original factory where they where they started hey, up. Yeah, Burlington University. They used to have marijuana plants growing out the ground, and you could get Burlington's ice cream. What, what else? A combo. Place? It was, and it goes on. And down the road from me now, they do some bloody good ice cream as well. So ice cream is very important. The second thing is uh, the blues. John the Revelator. If you've never heard it, Sunhouse singing John the Revelator, if it doesn't make you fearful in a kind of awesome way, <laughs> you're listening to it too quietly. <laughs> and it's dead corny, you know, but what what gets me through life is having someone like Rose in my life, Sarah <laughs> in my life, and my wife, Judy, and my grandson. And it's people. I tell you, it's people. And being able to have senses and being able to still hear and see and touch and taste all that is fantastic. When all that goes, I'm ready to pass on. Don't ever, I mean, I tell you, it's, love is just a fucking amazing thing. Honestly, Matthew. Wow. Man, like, just the way you look at life. The, the number of times I've just taken a big old deep breath when you said certain things. And Rose is going to say, oh, you're going to give him this, this big head now. But honestly, yeah. mate, it's, it's absolutely, I feel like there are going to be people listening to this on a genuine level who really need to hear certain things like that at this time as well. Like it really need to hear just that passion and that the phrase is zest, isn't it? Zest for life. I think just, just amazing contributions there. And just, and just the way you've articulated that is brilliant. Thank you so much. Love that. 70 year old goals, I'd say. Yeah. Mm. Oh yeah. As you get older, you probably do appreciate your senses a bit more. I mean, I'm mm. already getting pretty fed up with my poor eyesight, but that mm. I guess that gets heightened as you, as you go on. I mean, they're incredible. Where they come from? Who invented them? <laughs> How did they get to be inside an organism? <laughs> Matthew and Rose, thank you so, so much for being a part of our episode today, tonight, wherever we are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm my, my just, I've just been so like absorbed with everything. I've forgotten where I am. Yeah, thank you so much for being a part of it. We, we appreciate you so much. And, um, and some of the stories you've heard tonight have just been 
uh, as inspiring as they are entertaining. So yeah, <laughs> thanks Honestly. so much for having us Thank on. You guys. It's so lovely to meet you both as well. And um, yeah. Rose, best luck with uh, the books, not boys. Thank best you. Best luck with Shake It Up as well. Go and check them both out on Instagram and check out Shake It Up as well. Their show is coming very very soon. And um, Matthew and Rose, thank you so so much. Thank you guys. Yeah, have a great rest of your week. Thank you. Bye. This has been the Quarter Life Chronicles with Duncan Mitchell and Lyle Fulton. You know the drill. Give us a follow on Instagram and don't forget to like, share and subscribe. Until next week, thanks for listening.